You are listening to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast with Monica Louie, episode number 26. Welcome to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast, where we help online entrepreneurs grow their influence, amplify their impact, and scale their businesses all the way to seven figures. And now, here's your host, Monica Louie. She loves purple. She loves paid advertising. She's a work-from-home mom building a thriving business while raising two little ones. And her name is Monica. And no, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about my guest on today's show. But she does have a fabulous name, I've got to say. My daughter would call us twinsies because we have so much in common, but I am so excited to share with you my interview with the one and only Monica Froze. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 26 of the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I am Monica Louie, and you are going to absolutely love this interview. Now, if you don't know me yet, I am a Facebook and Instagram ad strategist, and I run a successful ads agency where my team and I manage ads for six and seven figure online businesses. I'm also the creator of Flourish with Facebook ads, my online training program that teaches my step-by-step system for creating campaigns that convert. My team and I have managed more than one and a half million dollars in ad spend and served more than 500 students and clients. And we are in the trenches every day, keeping a pulse on what's working now in the world of Facebook and Instagram ads. The goal of this podcast is to discuss what it really takes to build a seven-figure online business. And of course, paid advertising can be an important part of that. And as you can tell, I'm a big fan of paid advertising, and that's why I'm so excited to have Monica Froze on the show today. Monica is a professional blogger and Pinterest marketing expert. She has an MBA degree in finance and marketing and blogs at Redefining Mom, a site for helping moms thrive in both motherhood and business. She spent 11 years working for a Fortune 100 company running multi-million dollar marketing campaigns with huge brands like Microsoft, HP, and Cisco. Now she provides online marketing education to people who are looking to build profitable businesses through effective sales funnels and Pinterest ads. In this episode, we talk about so many things, including overcoming mom guilt, redefining failure, growing a team, and of course, how to use promoted pins to grow your traffic, your email list, and your revenue. Monica shares how a meeting with President Obama spurred her into leaving her corporate job and taking her blog full-time. She shares her take on mom guilt and how she overcame it and how Monica's self-proclaimed impatience led to her becoming the go-to expert on promoted pins, how to simultaneously drive traffic via promoted pins and retarget with Pinterest, Facebook, and Instagram to drive more sales, and the biggest game changer with promoted pins that you definitely should be testing, and a whole lot more. Now, before we dive in, I want to make sure that you know you can find all of the links and resources that we mentioned in today's episode at monicalouie.com slash 26. That's M-O-N-I-C-A-L-O-U-I-E dot com slash the number 26. Okay, let's dive in to the interview with Monica Froze from redefiningmom.com. Hey, Monica, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to chat with you today. Well, I'm excited to be here with another Monica. (laughs) I know. So we were just talking about how we have so much in common in addition to our first names, which is beautiful, by the way. (laughs) And not that common, actually. 
I know. It's really know. not. Like, I didn't grow up with like a, another Monica in the classroom. Me neither. Me neither. So, I'm just excited to have you and have this conversation with you. So can you please, for those listening that don't know who you are, can you explain who you are, what you do? And then I want to go into kind of how you got here. Yeah. Well, okay. So my name's Monica Froze and I got, well, where do you start with how I got started? Let's see. I started blogging. I entered this fun online world in, let's see, June of 2013. And I started blogging at a site called Redefining Mom. And at the time, Redefining Mom was meant for a place actually to vent about my anger towards the maternity leave system in the United States. So my oldest daughter was seven months old and I was dealing with pretty severe postpartum PTSD at the time, undiagnosed. I felt like I was very career oriented prior to having my daughter. I always assumed that I would keep a corporate career and climb the ladder. I would work for a large Fortune 100 company. And really when I went back to work, it felt like everything was crashing down around me, but it felt like it was just me. Like I felt like something was wrong with me. Like I was not functioning, but everyone else I looked at was functioning fine after they had kids. So it was like a, it was a pretty rough time. So naturally what one does is start a blog. And then this whole world opened up to me of blogging, which is sort of funny because my corporate career was in marketing. So you'd think that it would be, I'd have been a little bit more familiar with this whole world of blogging, but really it's a whole separate beast of its own. And I got really obsessed with everything to do with how to turn a blog into how to monetize it. But really probably the catalyst for me was I got invited by President Obama to the White House which by the way, I thought was a spam email when I got it wow. and I put it in spam. I deleted it. No lie. I, got, I was at my desk at work and thankfully I mentioned this to a coworker, got this invite to, it was a working families event and they referred to me as the press because I had a blog, which I really didn't do much with the blog because I was working full time, traveling all the time for my career. And I was at the lunch counter at work. And I mentioned it to a coworker that I just got this goofy email from apparently the White House. And I blew it off. Like clearly it's spam. The White House doesn't email people. (laughs) And she's like, well, but maybe it's not spam and you should check into that. So I called the White House. That's a thing. There's a White House switchboard and got moved around to quite a few people until I arrived at the desk of the person who actually emailed me. And it was a legitimate invite. And the interesting thing about that is when you get invited to the White House, you actually don't know if you're going to meet the president because they don't really advertise his schedule. That's a security breach. And so I was told that I had to be in DC within like four days from then, which was, I'm not on the fly type person. So I was like, wait, I have a job. Like, I don't know about this. And everyone's like, you have to go, obviously. So I decided to go, got to Washington, and the night before got invited into the West Wing for a sit down with the president. Wow. Which I was not expecting. I didn't even know if I'd meet him. Like we knew Michelle would be there, but we did not know if President Obama would be there. So I got the invite and then went to this event, got to sit in press seats, hear him talk about all the great things that they were trying to do for working families. And then I got to go into the West Wing and sit down and tell him and a few of his senior level cabinet members what I thought should change about the working mom culture. Wow. It was crazy. This was absolutely the catalyst, which 
made me decide that I was going to be a full-time blogger and I was going to get every woman out there out of a corporate job that didn't respect her knowledge and her drive for both her career and her family. I felt like that was everything in my life at that point was so much in favor of my career. And I just felt like, why can't I have both? Like, why can't I be super successful in my career, but also be able to tend to my daughter when she's sick without the guilt? And I was just determined that that was going to happen. And so I think it was about eight months later, I quit my job and I became a full-time blogger. Wow. That's an amazing story. I mean, that's incredible. I feel like our journeys are also kind of similar because it was, you know, me having my son getting pregnant and realizing that my priorities were shifting, you know, for the first time that I always, I too always envisioned myself being a working mom. That's what I saw from my mom, you know, and so that's kind of what I just kind of figured would happen. But then as I had my son, I realized that I was getting sent this different message from my corporate career where just because your priorities are changing doesn't mean ours are here. And so that's where I was like, okay, Okay, looking for another solution. I was like, I know that there's got to be something that I can do where I can create my own schedule. And that's how I kind of fell into the blogging world as well. So interesting. Okay. So you decided, you made this decision from this experience that you're going to go and be a full-time blogger. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to figure this out. So what did you do? I mean, was your blog already making money at that time? No. How did you do that? No. no, I very much am a risk averse, which is, this is the funny, when I look back at my journey, I do feel like this is probably the funniest thing ever because I'm so risk averse. We totally were living paycheck to paycheck at this point. And what ended up happening was I enrolled in Elite Blog Academy. So this was, I went to the White House in April of 2015, enrolled in Elite Blog Academy in September of 2015. And it's so hilarious because the course at the time was 297 and I remember hiding it from my husband. Because I knew he was going to think like, what? Why are you spending money on this? Like, what are you even talking about? Even though, I mean, I had proven that I had been on Fox News at this point. I had gotten invited to the White House. Like, it, clearly this could be a thing. But still, it was just not something that probably would have ranked on our investment <laughs> things to invest in at the time. I remember hiding it from him. And then eventually I just sort of slipped it into conversation. And I'm like, this is going to happen. I am going to follow this course. I'm going to do everything she tells me to do because I had been following the creator Ruth for years at this point. And I just really resonated with what she had built. And I was like, I am going to do what she says and I'm going to make this a thing. And then four months later, we got offered, my husband and I both got approached for an opportunity at a small company in our industry. And it was going to allow me to work from home and it was not going to require travel. And I decided this would be my bridge job where I could free up my time and still bring in a paycheck and make this blog a thing. And I gave myself eight months. So I quit in January of 16. And by August of 16, I had turned the blog into a full-time income. And yeah, at that point I got it to, it was almost replacing my corporate salary when my husband happened to get offered a really amazing opportunity, which kind of filled that gap. And we just took the leap and we decided that if I put my full focus in the blog, that it was going to be something. And I should have been more scared about it. I really do feel like I should have been more scared about it, but it worked out for the best for sure. Well, I feel like you were very passionate. I think this is my perspective, at least you tell me if you agree, but I think that in order to kind of get noticed by the White House, that already like you had this passion that people could feel and resonate with through your blog. And so to me, it seems like once you're passionate about something and you're focused on something, 
Like there's no stopping you. And that's what I'm hearing from your story. So you were like, I'm going to make this happen. I am going to create this freedom business so that I can create my life and my family the way that I want to. And so like you just decided you were going to do it and you made it happen. So to me, I think that because you were so focused, maybe that's why you weren't so scared. I knew, I always say I don't fail. I say it to my husband all the time. Like if I have my mindset on something, I'm not going to fail. Our biggest fight actually at this point financially was I was getting a lot of opportunities to trade time for dollars and I refused them all. And that was very hard for him to understand why I was turning down guaranteed money to chase something that wasn't yet tangible. And I told him, I'm like, just give me six months. And this was at the time I quit my job for good in August of 16. I said, give me six months. And I'm now that I'm thinking about it, my first $10,000 a month was February of 17. So I've made good on what I said. And that was, I got to $10,000 a month without trading time for dollars. That was building the foundation, building up the affiliate income, and then getting into products was... I love products and Ruth loves products for uh, Leap Blog Academy. And I, it really resonated with me because her business turned too when she decided that digital products were the way to go. And I said, I'd follow what she told me to do. And I did. And here I am. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I think that's a lesson that everybody can kind of take is that, you know, if you set a goal, so I love talking about goal setting and setting big goals too, but you've got to have a plan to get there. And so that, and that can, you know, come about where it's you created it on your own or you find a mentor like you did, you find a program, you find a system, a path that is proven that you just, you know, commit to it wholeheartedly and do what they say to do. And then you actually like realize those results. And then also your undying commitment. So you were showing your undying commitment where like you were getting all these offers that could have like derailed your path, derailed your focus, you know, maybe made, you know, turn that six months into 12 months or longer, but you were just very committed to your goal. And then I also love, I mean, what I think could be a mantra of I don't fail. So that's just not part of my DNA like that. And if we all hold on to that kind of belief within ourselves, I feel like then all of us can start to get closer to hitting our true potential. So I feel like there's so many lessons in your story. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, yeah, I'm glad I got the opportunity to share all that because it's been a while since I feel like I've really gone back into time to talk about how, because the thing about this world I find so interesting is how fast it moves. Like that really wasn't that long ago. And yet it feels like it was forever ago. And with growing a business, like I have my MBA and everything. So I'm fairly business savvy, but still it's so different to grow your own business and the things you run into. And even now I was, had this thought yesterday, I took off a work a little early. I was feeling a little overwhelmed. I'm in the middle of a launch and I decided to walk away, which is very hard first for me to do when I know there's stuff that still has to get done. And I was thinking about the concept of failure. And I was thinking about how, like I've had launches that maybe on paper you could consider, I didn't hit the goal, so you could consider that a failure. And I thought, still, there's really no such thing as failure because if everything went exactly how I wanted it to go, I would never push myself outside of my comfort zone to make changes and learn new things. So it's actually necessary for things to not always work out how you expect them to so that you push yourself outside of that comfort zone. And that was a recent realization to me because probably three years ago, I would have said, well, that was a failure and I don't like failure. And I would have been so hard on myself about it instead of realizing that there's really no such thing as a failure 
if you're willing to take lessons out of it. That's so true. That's so true. And that's so powerful. So I think that that just kind of shows the resiliency that you, you kind of need to have when you're building your own business. Because we see, I mean, we've been in the blogging world. I've been around like as long as you have. And we see people come and go and people are really motivated. And then people are like, oh yeah, you know, I'm not really doing that anymore. Or, you know, but I think having that resiliency and that commitment to achieving your goal, but then also looking at, you know, when there is a quote unquote failure, that it's really just a learning opportunity. You just have to find what you need to learn from that. And you might not know that right away. It might not be clear until you know months, maybe even years later, but at least being open to the possibility of rather than that being a failure, that there's really something to learn out of that. Yeah. For sure. I think that's probably not to mention the like how much you grow as a person when you run your own business too, and how far it stretches you to do things outside your comfort zone. And just, it just stretches pretty much every side of my personality. I feel like has been stretched. Now we're hiring, which is, uh, I was so resistant to hiring on payroll. I was like, I don't want that responsibility of someone else's livelihood. That sounds ridiculously scary. And now I, <laughs> Now I'm like, why didn't I do this sooner? <laughs> this is amazing. And it's just funny because I mean, even eight months ago, I would have said, I'm, I'm not hiring someone on payroll. That's, I want to stay small. I kept telling myself I wanted to stay small as a way of like, this was a way to replace my corporate income and have more time with my kids. And then my husband actually was gently nudging me that you can still have both. Like you make your own rules. You get to decide when you're present and when you're working. So if you start hiring people, you're protecting that time that you're so passionate about having with your kids. And I was like, well, that's an interesting way to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so what does that look like? Have you hired contractors in the past and now this is your first actual payroll hire and is it a full-time or a part-time position? So right now she's part-time, but she'll probably be full-time sooner than even I would have anticipated. The turning point for me started when I had my second daughter. I had her in March of 2018. My kids are five and a half years apart because of the postpartum. I actually was not sure I was going to have another because it was very scary to consider going back into that, what I call a dark tunnel at the time. And so that's why my kids have such a gap between them. When I had her, the business had really started taking a turn because right in my third trimester, I was pushed by some really good blogging friends to develop what is now, I would consider my signature course on promoted pins. And I was resistant to it because I was full into the nesting stage. I'm like, I am not creating a course. This is not happening. Thankfully, I had great friends who pushed me to do it. The funny part was I closed shop for eight months to go on maternity leave. And I was getting blown up by people who wanted to get in the course because I had done one round of it and the word got out. And so people were begging me to open up the cart for the course. And so my husband and I had this discussion about, first of all, he's like, you need to open the cart. Like, hello, obviously you need to give these people an opportunity to buy. You're being begged right now. So we're going to pause and basically give you a a couple work days in here on maternity leave to get that done. And then the discussion became, well, what are we going to do? We didn't really have a plan for our daughter. Our family has been great with our first daughter. We always had family coverage. She never had to go to daycare, which was amazing because we were in corporate. And so we started looking at nannies and it became very clear that we were going to have to put the nanny on payroll, which you can't do in the States under your business. You have to employ them as a household employee. Once I did that, it started and I started realizing how much 
Cause that was insanely scary to put someone on payroll as myself. But when I realized how much time in my life was freed up, like, Oh, the amount of stuff that she coordinates, even down to birthday parties for my kids. I realized that if I apply the same methodology to my business, I mean, why wouldn't I? And I don't know why that was such a mental block for me for a while. Cause I had contractors that that was super easy. It was the livelihood thing that was really hanging me up. I feel like the responsibility of taking someone's livelihood under the business. And also there was always that fear of failure. So if you take on their livelihood and your business is supporting them, if something doesn't go right, then it feels like such a double failure as for personal, but also on the business side. And I think that's why it was resistant, but I got over that. And now I'm hiring for my second position too. So that's exciting. So do you mind sharing what those positions are? Yeah. So it it took me a while to decide what the first one should be. And I probably went a non-traditional route. So the first hire I did on payroll was a community manager because I really, in the last year, doubled down on the success of the Promoted Pins course. When you create a course, especially when you do it in your third trimester and you don't really expect much to happen with it, you learn a lot quite fast. And one of the things was the community I offer a bonus Facebook group with the course, which is a very active community. But Promoted Pins is a technical topic, which I'm sure you understand with Facebook ads. It's not as simple as someone asked you. There's no such thing as really a simple question. There's a lot of information you have to know to properly answer them and give them the right feedback. And just like the administration behind running a, a fairly successful course, I realized I need help I'm great at pulling people in and I'm great at going into the weeds with people, but the more people that come in, the harder that this is for one person to do. So I decided to hire a community manager to take on the people aspect of being like the first line of really welcoming people into the fold, making sure that they understand all the resources available to them, streamlining the resources that were available to them, and making it so I could remove myself slightly from the first line of defense in the Facebook group because I was spending so much time in there. It was just to the point where I wasn't getting any other work done. And the course, I always have, I keep it very updated. And that's so I have to keep updated on the market, right? Because they're going to want those right. updates. And so it's just like all these different things I had to be on top of. So that's where I decided to hire first. And really because we're a small business, she's a community manager, but she helps me with so many things. She's amazing because she also has a blog. She's familiar with ConvertKit. She's great with WordPress. So she's taken on so much stuff. It's just been amazing. It's like life-changing pretty much. So for this role, why did you decide to go the payroll route as opposed to another independent contractor? Really, because the way I function, come to find out that I function very corporate-like when it comes to my work schedule. It sounds so wonderful that you work for yourself and you can work whenever you want, but the reality is that means you work all the time. And so there was no boundaries. And so I was not honoring the family side the way that I truly wanted to. So hiring a nanny keeps very corporate hours. So I need someone available when I'm working. And when you have contractors, you can't dictate their time. And that was becoming a huge issue from a productivity standpoint for me. So I decided that putting them on payroll was the best way to, and a few of my mentors encouraged me that when you put someone on payroll too, you're committing them to your team. I've had 
fabulous VAs in the past, but they were committed to their company and the growth of their company. And that means they can phase out real fast. Their rates can go up out of nowhere, which you might not be budgeting for. So this was a, all around, it seemed like a more logical decision at this stage of growth to do. I see. All right. So then with the second position, what is that one going to be? That's going to be an executive assistant. Okay. So I am an in the weeds person. (laughs) Definitely. I am in the weeds with things that I need to be out of the weeds with so that I can go back to really innovating too. I really do miss the days where I saw an opportunity like this would be a great thing to create. And then I just went off and created it. Can't really do that anymore. (laughs) I feel like there's a lot more responsibility now to keep the revenue coming in and you got to double down on where it's coming from. And so I really, I miss developing stuff for my community. And I feel like an executive assistant is what I need to push that stuff that I spend way too much time on off my plate. (laughs) Very cool. So I actually have an episode, episode 16. If you are in the beginning stages of looking for an executive assistant, I interviewed Jess Lindgren. She is Pat Flynn's executive assistant. And she had great advice to give as far as what to look for for an executive assistant. So anybody out there who might also be in that same spot looking for an executive assistant or thinking about it, that's a really great episode to check out. I am absolutely going to listen to that because we just made the decision to look locally. So I'm not sure if that's one of her things that she thinks local is the way to go for an executive assistant. I know that she actually moved from the Midwest to San Diego. And part of her decision to do that was because I, you know, their working relationship. So we didn't, I don't remember specifically talking about that, but I know that I feel like that's becoming more and more common in the online world where you can work from anywhere and hire from anywhere. But I'm seeing that become a, a more common trend. I think there are certain roles where it makes sense to have people local, you know, just like the nature of an executive assistant and the things that she's going to inevitably help me with. For example, if I want to do an event, because I did events in my corporate background, and I actually think I could throw a pretty mean event. (laughs) I think my husband has asked me to do it for years, but there was no way I could execute it on my own. I'm I'm risk adverse in that regard. Having someone locally to be able to do it, like I have Niagara Falls in my backyard. So in the summer months, we have a really great place to bring people here locally. So having an executive assistant to help me plan that, there's a lot of things locally where I feel like I'd benefit from having someone. Very cool. Okay. So you've been growing the business, now making hires. What challenges have you? I mean, I I feel like there've got to be many, but it sounds like, you know, you commit to your goal and you make it happen. So what challenges have you experienced over the years in growing your business? Well, I I definitely think the biggest mindset growth challenge has been the hiring. And by far that has been where I struggled the most. I would say beyond that, owning expert status is also difficult for me. I definitely know... (laughs) I know I'm an expert in promoted pins at this point. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. When I talk to people, I'm well aware that I know way more than the average person who runs an ad. It can be intimidating, I think. And that is a mindset thing to overcome, to really own it. I would say that that's the biggest thing. I don't really struggle much with, like, I don't have money, money mindset issues. Like, I'll take your money. You should pay me for what I'm offering. I don't struggle on that regard. Like business operations, I'm pretty good at. It's usually mindset stuff. So how have you been working on overcoming that? Or have you? Like, 
how have you been been continuing to move forward? Well, I noticed when the business really started taking off after my daughter was born and I got a lot of opportunities for travel and to do just really cool things with people in the industry, I realized that I stopped investing in my own personal growth. Like absolutely. I stopped investing in my personal growth. I stopped going to the gym. I was just, I almost feel like I was sliding backwards with all the things I had committed to after leaving corporate. So I've made a very conscious effort starting in the beginning of this summer to get back into the gym, get a schedule. And I started reading again and not just business stuff all the time. Like Rachel Hollis's book, I knew about it and people told me I should read it. And who's got time for that? I took some time to read it. I felt really invigorated by it. Like I just felt like it opened up the self-development part again, really got me into that. I, so I, now I'm journaling and just like honoring that space, I think has been huge for me this summer, which goes hand in hand with hiring for payroll. Really the whole mindset, owning my expertise, not shying away from that. And then owning the fact that it's an actual business. Like this is not just replacing my corporate income and I make a paycheck. That was the one thing that I really learned. I'm in a, a mastermind. And one of the things you can have a high paying glorified job or you're going to have a business, like which one is it? And you have to make your decision. And I was told you have a high paying glorified job at this point. And if you want it to be a business, you're going to have to own it. And so I made the decision. I'm going to own that. Very cool. Okay. So which book of Rachel Hall is this? Is it Girl, Wash Your Face or Girl, Stop Apologizing? So that's, I read Girl, Wash Your Face and I've queued for my next flight to read Girl, Stop Apologizing. Awesome. I've read them both recently and they're, I mean, just both fantastic. I totally agree. Like her working mom stuff that she talks about is basically, she's speaking my language. When she says she won't apologize for being a working mom, one time about two years ago in an interview, right before I had my second baby, I had said something about how I do not feel guilty about being a working mom. And I emphatically do not want to be a stay-at-home mom. And I feel zero guilt about it. And I, my emails blew up from that statement, like just blew up. I couldn't believe how many people that resonated with. I basically put mom guilt to bed when my daughter was two. I decided there was no place in my life for that. That's so great. Okay. That was actually going to be my next question is how do you deal with that? But I guess you just made this decision. No, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. No, I don't. I do not do mom guilt. Even my six-year-old tries to mom guilt me and we do not have it. She knows, like she'll come up after school and want my attention. And if I'm doing something, I will tell her like, this is work time. I will be down at X time. I'm very clear on when it is. I constantly remind her of the benefits of me working, how it benefits her life. I tell her that all the time. All the things that she gets to do, all the extras that she gets, that is a direct result of me working. Not to mention she needs to see what hard work actually is. And how else am I going to set that example if I'm not doing it myself? And that's not to say it like, and I will, I'm very clear about this. Stay-at-home moms are saints. 100% they are saints. They work equally as hard and they can show the equal example. But since I don't want to be one, I would not be a hardworking stay-at-home mom and I would not be setting that example. Right. No, I agree with you. For me, I feel like I'm serving my purpose by working and building my business. And I'm also being a great example for my kids. So I feel the same way, the exact same way. 
Okay. So now that we talked about that, oh my gosh, I'm very excited. Now I definitely want to talk about Pinterest and promoter pins. So starting off blogging, I mean, how did you learn Pinterest strategy and promoted pins and become the go-to expert for promoted pins? I mean, that's what you are (laughs) and you're accepting that role now. Accepting it. Well, it wasn't planned. (laughs) That's for sure. So I grew up in the tech industry and the majority of my career was spent in corporate marketing. So marketing concepts, building marketing campaigns for very large brands like Microsoft, providing ROI, every digital marketing, onsite marketing, I have experience, I've seen it all. So it was not a foreign concept to me when I came over to the blogging world. And I feel like the perfect storm happened when I really started taking my blog serious was when Pinterest was the way to get traffic to your blog. That is what everyone was a buzz about. So of course I was like, well, I'm going to master this because I don't like failure, right? So I am going to learn everything that there is to learn about Pinterest. And as I started doing that, I'm also impatient. So it's like, okay, organic traffic is great. I want it faster. How do we get this faster? And even more so, I got hyper-focused on the conversion. So I would scratch my head with a lot of bloggers and say, you're very focused on getting this traffic. What are you doing with this traffic once it gets to your site? And it's still actually, I call it an epidemic out there. There are so many bloggers that blow my mind with their traffic levels that they're getting. And they're not really effectively monetizing. They're not bringing the people who are coming to their site into their fold of their business. I always say, man, if I had a million page views, I would be a multimillionaire. So I don't get, I don't understand why there's such a lack of focus on the conversions for a lot of bloggers. And really early on, I recognized the conversion was going to matter and I want to target traffic and I wanted it on my timetable. I didn't want to wait for a pin to take off. I didn't want to wait to be indexed. So I started exploring promoted pins and they were way in their infancy stage. I mean, I mean, they're still in their infancy. St- I would say they're toddlers now. Promoted pins are in the toddler stage. They're kind of whiny. They don't articulate well sometimes, I guess you could say. But back when I started them, they were infants and the, like no targeting available like at all. And nobody was using them. So it was a wide open space to just come in and and run them really, and just take all the ad spots. And so when I realized that, I was like, why are people not doing this? And I kept asking that question because I'm just inquisitive like that. So I'd ask all my blogging friends, why are you not running promoted pins? And they'd tell me, well, I ran a campaign when they came out and I spent all this money. I got nothing in return. I'm like, well, what was your objective? And then they'd all look at me like, what do you mean? I was just trying to get traffic. I'm like, so of course you didn't really see any results from it because you weren't doing anything with the traffic. And then I got, that's when these same friends started saying, you need to teach this because you know way more than you're letting on. And I still wasn't convinced that I knew that much, but I put up a beta course. I said the first 20 people that bought, it was $97. And I laid out like I was going to release it within five weeks. And I was really clear. I'm like, I'm having a baby. So after this five weeks, this is it. I'm closing down. You will not hear from me until this baby is out. And I got 20 people to sign up in an hour, which was mind boggling to me back then. So I did the beta and it went really well. And through actually running a course on the topic, because I refuse to take people's money and not provide the value, 
I pushed myself to learn more and more and more and go behind more campaigns and branch out into multiple niches to make sure that what I was teaching was applicable across the board. And through doing that, pushing myself to be the best, and really it was driven by not letting down the people who had paid me money for this. I think I just sort of became the expert (laughs) through this. Okay. So what year was that when you created the course? The beta started in November of 2017 and it wrapped up right after Christmas that year. And I did the first public launch in January of 18, which I did a three-day challenge, which was still to this day, my favorite challenge because there's something magical about not knowing what you're doing. (laughs) And and it was like, so you didn't really know what, I didn't have expectations because I didn't know what I was doing. So it blew me away with how active the challenge group was, how much feedback and buzz came out of it was just mind boggling to me at the time. But like, I remained true to my word at the end of that launch, which was like the third week of January of 18, I went into hibernation mode and I closed down. My business actually ran on promoted pin funnels at this point. I had enough of my funnels were, were functioning well enough and I knew how to get the right traffic from promoted pins that they could sustain my income through maternity leave. And then I think I reopened it because of everyone urging me to in April of 18. And then it just sort of took on a life of its own is kind of what I say. I was almost resistant. I was sort of like a kicking toddler at this point. I was like, but I don't want my whole life to be about Pinterest ads. I said it repeatedly. I'm like, I don't want it. And then I just decided that, no, I'm going to own it because this is an amazing opportunity and I would be foolish to ignore it. So I would say maybe in the fall of 18, so not even that long ago, not even a year ago is when I decided that this is what I'm going to be known for. Awesome. Okay. I love your story. Can we talk about promoted pin strategy and where does this... So if we want to drive traffic faster than an organic Pinterest strategy, this is where we can put some money toward our promoted pins and really kick it off up a notch. Is that right? Yeah. So the thing is, is that first of all, there's more people on the platform, right? And I talk about this concept of legacy pins. <laughs> and when I refer to a legacy pin, and I actually got this because I traveled to Pinterest headquarters in June of 2018, actually right after I had the baby, I said to my mom, I'm like, so you're going to take the baby because I'm going to San Francisco, Pinterest called. And she's like, okay. <laughs> so I went out to Pinterest and I got to see what Pinterest looked like from the employee side, which pieced together so many puzzle pieces for me. So it came up what I coin it as a, I call it a legacy pin. So essentially what happened was when Pinterest was growing and really hit its growth stage with content being put on the platform, there are pins that are essentially grandfathered into search results. So they have been on the top of search results for their keywords for years, and it's almost impossible to bump them out. And the way when I saw Pinterest employees search Pinterest from the back end, so what they don't see what we see, this is when the concept solidified that this is a thing. Because I had started picking up on this being a thing. Like, how do you break into some of these really competitive search results? How do you break into them? And it seemed near impossible. And I started realizing it's because some of these pins are just have so much indexing steam behind them that you really can't bump them out. So the really, the only way to compete with them is to promote a pin. So that's the first thing. When you promote a pin, it's all keyword based. So you're telling Pinterest, 
where you want this pin to show up. And if you step back from that, the reason this is different from Facebook is Facebook, you say, I mean, Facebook is very powerful and knows a lot more about us than Pinterest by far, but the user behavior is very different. So when I'm going through Facebook, I don't know that you're going to target me with my sports bra ad because I had searched that yesterday. Now at this point as a marketer, I assume you're going to, however, that's not why I opened my Facebook app, right? I did not open it to buy a sports bra. I very well opened my Pinterest app to find the best sports bra. And if I happened to find it, I'd probably end up buying it. So the user behavior on Pinterest being search-driven is very different. They come with a different mentality. They know what they want. And if you have a solution and you're willing to offer it to them with a promoted pin to get on top of their search results, they're going to buy it. So then that's really like the crux of it is the fact that to understand what people, you have the solution, but what are people searching? What is the problem people are searching that they want your solution? If you can find those keywords and then set up a campaign the right way to target that, it's a goldmine. So we run a Facebook ads agency and we work with clients running Facebook and Instagram ads for them. And we actually, several months ago now, we started to see the potential for some of our blogging clients specifically on Pinterest and then running promoted pins. So we ended up buying your program and going through the program and learning your strategies. And now we very successfully run promoted pin campaigns for our clients. So thank you for that. So this is something that we're seeing, but it's definitely very different. It's, it's very different from Facebook and Instagram. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, bringing up the point about People like to think of Pinterest as like a social network, but really it's a search-based engine, right? And so we need to think about people's behavior on Pinterest and how that's going to be very different than when they're on Facebook. So for bloggers, I mean, we think about using organic Pinterest to drive traffic and building up our Pinterest strategy there. And then we monetize with affiliate marketing a lot. So we can definitely use promoted pins to get those monetize blog posts in front of our ideal reader on Pinterest. What other strategies should we be using promoted pins for? So email list growth and promoting direct to that solution. So to the product, to the sales page, super effective with promoted pins. And the biggest thing running a course where I'm teaching people how to DIY Pinterest ads. And because my background as a blogger means I have a lot of bloggers who follow me. So naturally the the first round of people really the for the first year and a half, the majority of people taking my course were bloggers. It's been a serious education lesson to constantly remind them that blog posts aren't always the best conversion mechanism out there. As a matter of fact, I would argue that they are not the best conversion mechanism a lot of times when you're running paid ads, because at the end of the day, as a small business, we want results. And so it's sort of like when you promote to a blog post, you're kind of hoping that they're going to take the action you want them to take. And it can be, I always challenge people to search the keywords that they think they should, that their product or their solution or whatever they want to promote, what keywords are you going to target? Search those keywords and go through the top like 10 results and see what people are doing. And it's shocking to me. This is like my big thing now. It's just shocking to me how many balls are being dropped with these top ranking search results because we go to the blogs 
and you're being asked in the header to sign up for one thing and the sidebar to sign up for another thing. You get pop up here and pop up there and this ad and this. And you know what? You're confusing people. So they might have come for what they searched for and maybe through the billions of ads that you have on your site, they actually got the content, but they don't know what action they're supposed to take next. They don't know that they should sign up for your email list because you asked them to sign up four different times for four different things and they go away and you will never get your ROI with ads from doing that. So I certainly offer the strategy to go direct to a blog post. It is not my favorite one for, I'm all about cutting out the noise. I'm very passionate about let's cut out the noise and go for what you want, which is, do you want the email conversion? Do you want the sale? By the way, even if you only want the email, we can still get the sale on the back end. So I, I'm very passionate about the conversion. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So let's say we want to grow our affiliate marketing, our affiliate revenue. Is there a different strategy that we should be employing other than driving traffic to blog posts or what does that look like? I am very strategic with affiliates. And I, I think the obvious is, so a lot of times people just want to direct to an affiliate link or direct them from their blog off to Amazon. I love instead building cookies. I love building cookies. So I love finding affiliates that are strategic where I can drive traffic and get a lifetime cookie for it. And it's very dependent on how the affiliate program runs. So love lifetime cookies. Pinterest is not so great for like last click cookies because let's say you're going to promote something and it's in like an open and closed cart. It's not available all the time. If it's a last click cookie, you're going to lose because chances are they're not going to end up clicking your link when they go to buy. So actually what I ended up doing was spinning up a whole nother like sister course about affiliate marketing, because as I came to realize, most people see affiliate links as very singular. Like here's my affiliate link, click on it. I hope you buy and goodbye. Like that's the end of it. And I'm like, well, there's gotta be a better way. So I started coming up with affiliate funnels where I still want to own the relationship because, you know, when you step back and look at it, why do I want to send someone off my blog post direct to Amazon? Honestly, when you think about it, it's like, so they might buy something. I might get a few bucks. What if you got them on your email list? That potential, the lifetime value of that person is so much greater. On your email, you can be sending them to affiliate opportunities forever. Send them to your own products. You can be so much more strategic when you own the relationship that I don't understand the whole, I hope they click on my affiliate link and they might make a purchase, but I have no control over that if it happens. Right. Okay. So we can use promoted pins then to grow our email list. Do you recommend offering our free lead magnet or is there another strategy that we should be using? I mean, generally you have to have some way to get them on your email list, right? So people don't just hand over their email because you ask them kindly, (laughs) but e-commerce is huge on Pinterest. It's becoming a shoppable platform pretty fast right now, especially since it became public in April. And with that, it depends really what type of business you have, because if you're going to send straight to your e-commerce store to get them on your email list, it's going to be way different than someone like I offer digital products. So I probably have a lead in freebie that I'm going to offer you, get you on my email list, probably have a tripwire after it, limited time offer. Then I'll sell you later down the funnel. I'll probably get you into, I'll lock my affiliate cookies with numerous programs once you're in my email funnel. But if you're selling e-com, it's going to be a little bit more typical, like the free shipping, the percentages off. So it really kind of depends what your business is and how you're coming at it. I think the biggest education thing I've had is people are afraid to direct sell. And I'm constantly reminding them that people already are on Pinterest because they need 
a solution. They're actively searching their problem, hoping you have a solution. They want to buy it. So this is not, you're not bothering them. Take out that weird, like, I don't want to sell that's gross because it's really not. You're actually doing them a favor. So then we should absolutely be retargeting on Pinterest. We should. Now, I... (laughs) I can really geek out about this because I often feed people through Pinterest and then retarget on Facebook. You know, they're hitting both pixels. And the thing about that is Facebook, in my opinion, still, I mean, blows out of the water retargeting. I mean, between that and Instagram, their algorithms and their machine is just much more mature. So we do retarget. Absolutely. We retarget on Pinterest. But I think that where Pinterest, where their golden nugget is, is actually attracting cold people into your funnel. And then you can do the retargeting over on on Facebook and Instagram. So I I absolutely run retargeting ads. I'm not telling people not to do it. I'm just giving some insight. And if, if I had to pick like where the real gold is on Pinterest, it's with those people who don't even know you yet, but need your solution, who never would have found you otherwise, because you're drowned out on Google especially if you're selling products, you're, you're drowned out by the big guys. It's such an wide open space. I read, cause I read their, I'm a little nerdy and I read all of their filings with the SEC since it became public and they're really long financial documents and there's lots of golden nuggets built in there. And I want to say, I just read a report. And so don't totally quote me, but I'm almost positive that it was 68% of searches. It was either searches or going on to buy for no-name brands, basically. So what I'm getting at, it was a very high percentage of people who discover brands that are not the targets of the world. Right. That's true. I mean, I use Pinterest all the time for looking for recipes and I will end up on websites that I've never even heard of. And I feel like I've been around the blogging space for a long time that I, you know, at least should have stumbled upon them at some point, but I'm finding them on Pinterest. Yeah. It's a really great place for small business owners at this point. So is there any part of the strategy? So on Facebook and Instagram, we will, when we're driving leads into a funnel, we'll also warm them up by showing them videos. We find that GIF ads do really well. Is there any place for video ads and GIFs on Pinterest? So video is definitely one of their top priorities at this point. They're falling down in some regards here, but they're getting better. So video they've been trying to push for at least a year hasn't really made much traction until they became public in April. And now they're definitely trying to, they're trying to double down on it, but where they're falling down is a video in the feed that's not promoted. You cannot click on it. It actually just pauses the video. And that is against Pinterest user behavior. A user on Pinterest thinks they're going to click on it and be able to go to the site. And when it's organic and it's not promoted, there's you actually have to find the website address. It's like a gray button, depending if you're on desktop or mobile, it might be next to it or on the side, and click on that to get to the website. And so they were having a hard time getting traction because content creators were like, well, I'm not getting traffic from this. I don't really... Small business owners, we're not paying for impressions at this point, right? Like we're not target. Brand awareness is like, you know, we need action. But the ads, video ads, you can click on the video and go directly to the website. So video ads are starting to make, we're turning the corner with people adopting it. The challenge is the cost. So 
it's kind of all over the place where static images are much more predictable. Like as a teacher of this, I'm much more comfortable giving advice on static images because it's much more predictable of how they'll perform across niches. With video, it can be hit or miss. You can be just totally wasting money in some niches, doing much better in others, like recipes and stuff, like anything like when you can demonstrate, like because Pinterest really is a how-to platform. So if you can demonstrate it, they're doing much better. But I'm not a naysayer on it at all. I absolutely think like give it another year and they're going to be there's going to be significant improvements to the way that they're working. And actually, I'm not a video creator at all. So that is like top of my list to, to start getting videos created for myself that are Pinterest-friendly videos to really double down on the fact that anytime something's new, even if the costs are high right now, I mean, really, once there's a sweet spot there, like once they start optimizing that. But the biggest thing that they did was come out with conversion campaigns. When they became public in April, I've been in the beta since last July for conversion campaigns. So I knew that they were going to be a game changer. What they are is basically you could only optimize your ads two ways historically with promoted pins. You could do it by the impression, which like I said, we're not target. So I, we never really went down that route or you could optimize for the click. And that wasn't terrible because if I got the click and I was strong at converting on my website, that's why I always have honed it on the conversion. You could always track the conversion, but you were paying for the click and their algorithm was optimizing for getting the click. Now there's conversion campaigns. So their algorithm is optimizing just like Facebook when you do the conversion for purchase or lead. Same thing on Pinterest, right? Now we're optimizing for that. They call it checkout or sign up on Pinterest. And that algorithm is newer. So as I tell my students, you have to hang in there longer. But when you get to about day 14, between day 14 and day 21 is when the tides start changing and your costs will start dropping. And they're amazing. Conversion campaigns are amazing. To me, that was the biggest game changer that has happened with promoted pins. Very cool. Okay. So I'm definitely going to try it. And that's what we've experienced too, is that you do need to have a little bit more patience with Pinterest algorithm when driving traffic. But then also now you're saying with the conversion campaigns, have more patience. I forbid my students, even traffic campaigns to look at their data for seven days. And that is the most painful thing. And I have so many people that come that are very savvy, like yourself with Facebook ads and Facebook ads, people, I love you, but you can be the worst because you don't want to wait that seven days. You just don't. And it's like, I'm a, like when I had someone ask me a question, I should just record myself saying, has it been seven days and play it back because it's like the most repeated phrase that I say. Okay. So talking about costs, what kind of costs can we expect or should we be shooting for? So let's talk about our different strategies. So if we want to drive traffic to a blog post, what is like a good cost per click for that strategy? So I always start out all campaigns bidding 20 cents cost per click. And when you set up your campaign, they've gotten a little bit better with this, but they always do recommend it. Luckily they've gotten better, but back a year ago, even I would set up a campaign. It would say, I put in 20 cents to pay per click and it would say too low. You could still run the campaign, but it would give you a big warning saying too low. We recommend $2 and five cents. Well, Pinterest, I am not paying $2 and five cents for your click. And so the thing about that is, well, I think it's just silly that they put in those recommendations to be honest with you, but 
ad spots, as long as there are ad spots, and really ad spots are going to be determined by the search volume of those keywords. I never tried to compete with the targets of the world because we're not going to compete with them, right? So I wanted to slide into the ad spots that weren't being used by the big brands. And there are plenty of them that are high ranking. So the floor bid you can have is 10 cents cost per click. Like you can't even bid lower than that. Pinterest will not let you. And this is USD USD because every currency is a little different. So I always went in at 20 cents. So a little bit above what people who don't know what they're doing are going to put in there, right? And we play with the numbers from there. I almost never on a traffic campaign have to up that bid at all. And usually like the effective cost I pay per click is somewhere like 12 cents, 8 cents. And, you know, it drives down in the auction. But the reality is I still don't even care about what I pay per click. I do not care. I always care about the conversion. So I always tell people when they get fanatical about the click, I say, well, how is it converting? And you would be shocked. I get a lot of people will say, well, you know, I'm paying 37 cents per email. And I'll say, well, is that a profitable to be paying that per email? Like what's an email subscriber worth to you? And then we had to go through that education and they're doing super well, but they're like, but I'm paying 21 cents a click and that's too high. It's like, no, you'll pay whatever for the click. If you're paying what you need to for the conversion, like that's really what we care about. (laughs) Right. So for the conversion campaigns then, like, so let's say we're promoting our freebie, our lead Mm -hmm. magnet. So we can grow our email list, get people into our funnels. What are you seeing there cost-wise? So conversion campaigns are so interesting because you actually bid on what you want to pay for the action, right? So let's say I run a conversion campaign optimizing for the sign-up. So I'm optimizing to get the email on my list. Well, you're not billed. So unlike traffic campaigns where you bid per click and you pay per click, you're bidding on the action, but you're paying by the million impressions. So you're paying on CPM, which is industry standard. It's what you pay with Facebook. It's what you pay on Google. Industry standard for conversions. You're, you're measuring what you're paying for the conversion. But it's interesting because you bid. Because I believe, because Pinterest developed their algorithm based on a bid, that they needed that guideline from us to know for the algorithm to work. They need it like that baseline because it's how their algorithm was built. So it's hard because there's a few things you have taken into account. So first of all, it used to be when they were in beta, your daily budget had to be at least 25 times your CPA, so your cost per action bid. Otherwise, it wouldn't even distribute. It just wouldn't go anywhere. And now my recommendation is 10 times your daily budget should be at least 10 times your CPA bid. And the guidelines I give, and these are strictly guidelines because it's really important that you know what a conversion's worth in your own business. But I say, if you're in the B2C niche, for a sign up, I bid 50 cents for my initial bid to see what happens. And if you're in the B2B niche, bid a dollar for that sign up. And for checkouts, it's a little bit harder because it really depends on what your product's worth, right? What are your margins? What are you selling it for? It's really hard to give a benchmark for that. I don't even know if I do give a benchmark, to be honest with you. I'd have to go back and look because I base it on what the product is and the margins and all of that and what we can afford to pay for it is still be profitable. But the good thing is, is that at least everything I've seen so far, for the most part, of course, there's outliers. If you let the conversion campaign run for at least 14 to 21 days, you'll probably be paying a little bit more than what you bid for the action, but then the tides will start turning and it'll start driving down what you're paying for that conversion. So that's where we stand right now. And who knows in six months, but that's where we stand right now. 
That's great. That's super helpful. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I could just keep talking to you and picking your brain. There's so much to talk about here. But thank you so much for joining us, Monica. Where can people go to learn more about you, learn more about promoted pins? Yeah. So, well, everything right now is still housed on redefiningmom.com. Eventually, we're going to be splitting that up. And if you're interested in learning about promoted pins, I have a free course called Pin Practical Ads. And you can go to redefiningmom.com forward slash ads ADS to enroll in that. Awesome. Cool. Well, we will have all of those links in the show notes. But thank you so much for your time today. I really love this conversation and chatting with you about your journey, your entrepreneurial journey and promoted pins and all the things. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun chatting with Monica, and I hope that you enjoyed that interview as well. And I'd love to hear your major takeaways. What one thing are you going to take action on? For me, my team and I are going to test conversion campaigns on Pinterest. So let us know what your takeaways are in the comments at monicalouie.com slash 26, or tag Monica and me on Instagram. I am at Flourish with Monica, and she is at Redefining Mom. Big thanks to Monica for coming on the podcast and sharing her story and expertise with us. You'll find all the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode at monicalouie.com slash 26. And thank you so much for joining Monica and me today. I encourage you to take advantage of Monica's free course at redefiningmom.com slash ads if you're ready to get started with promoted pins. And if you're ready to get started with Facebook ads, then check out my free Facebook ad starter kit. You can find that at monicalouie.com slash guide. The starter kit takes you through these six steps to creating campaigns that convert. Plus, there's an awesome checklist so you can make sure you've got everything you need before you jump into the ads manager. And if you're like me, then you love a good checklist. And if you're interested in learning more about how my team and I might be able to help you with your Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest ads, go to monicalouie.com slash WWM. We have information there about our services. And as I mentioned, I'll have all the links and resources that I mentioned today in the show notes, which you can find at monicalouie.com slash 26. If you found this helpful, please leave a rating and review so that more people can find this podcast and subscribe so that you can be notified when the next episode comes out. Brand new episodes come out every single Thursday. And next week, I've got another great episode heading your way. So subscribe so you don't miss it. I will be bringing the conversation back to Facebook ads and sharing more strategies to grow your reach, your impact, and your revenue with high converting Facebook ads. So if you're ready to learn more about how you can use Facebook and Instagram ads to grow your business, join me next week on the Flourished Seven Figures podcast. That's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Take care and bye for now. 